0: Paragraph that's going through. Uh, Firstly, just to apologise for the non outline outline that you have, uh, and also that uh, 1 Corinthians 2 will get you to about half past in the talk, uh, because we're going to do 1 Corinthians 2 and 3, or most of it today. So get ready, we are in a uh, world. I want to start by talking to you about uh, baptism services. I don't know how you feel about baptism services, don't do much for me. Uh, until recently, that was when I started having kids and um, uh, once you have kids and you've seen the kid get baptised your own child uh, get baptised it kind of helps you appreciate them a whole lot more we we quite like doing this at our church Uh, you may not be into a a kid baptising kind of church I don't want to fight about that for the moment but just to say where I go we do and you hold this sort of squirming, screaming, vomiting kid uh, and, and, and we talk to the kid and charge it to renounce the devil and all his works, and the empty display and false values of the world, and and the sinful desires of the flesh, and you don't even want to know what it comes out there. Um, it's a great moment, actually, charging this child to stand firm in Christ, renounce the devil and all his works, the empty display and false values of the world and the sinful desires of the flesh the, the world, the flesh and the devil that great trio of enemies of God and his people you see it in Ephesians chapter 2 uh, and if, if that uh, which is where its uh, biblical basis lies it's kind of a tragedy that as Christians we're called to be both for the world for the world because it's God's good creation and at the same time to be against the world since it's God, God's good creation gone wrong God's good creation gone feral and so you see the display and values of the world according to the baptism service that uh, I take part in the display and values of the world as it is against God are empty and false they are empty and false and that's especially the case that's especially the case when it comes to answering the question that is your question that we started uh, looking at a press again uh, last week and we're going to continue on this week which is the question of identity, the question, who am I? Very powerful, very important question, which we're seeking uh, over this semester to answer, particularly with reference to the cross, as it's presented to us in 1 Corinthians. Now think with me for a while what uh, the the empty display and the false values of this world are. Just kind of step back and reflect on me. Do a bit of cultural criticism for a moment. It seems to me that the key principle of this world, the key answer to the question, who am I, the key uh, input that you get in terms of um, what is your identity, is that you are an individual. You are an individual. You're alone, and you're an individual. And the most important thing about you as an individual is, you have rights. You have rights. Some countries even have bills of rights to make sure that you know exactly what your rights are. And no one has the right to get in the way of your rights. You exist as an individual. You don't need other people, and others aren't allowed to need you. One of the consequences of that, of course, is that relationships with other people become essentially disposable. That's the way our culture works. Essentially disposable from friend, friends to lovers, don't they? Right through the whole gamut. And that when you lose them, you don't actually lose part of yourself, since you never really gave them that in the first place. And so deep down we have this kind of values, empty display and false values of serial friends and serial lovers. Serial values. And the fact that being an individual, secondly, is the most important thing leads to the goal of life, which is that your fundamental purpose is to secure your, the happiness of you, the individual. That's your task, to be happy. That's your job, says our world. And whatever you're into is good for you if it makes you happy. And if you're not into it, then no one can make you into something else. And you're to pursue happiness at all costs. That's the answer to the question from our world. And in third, if we push it a bit further on, that happiness is found fundamentally in comfort. In comfort. The kind of comfort that comes from the sorts of things that money can buy clothes that work for you, a house that suits you, a car that reflects your style. Food and drink, and lots of food and lots of drink, and drugs, perhaps, that satisfy you. Health now, which is now a right that you can purchase. And so you work hard for all those things. And we're constantly told to admire people who achieve them. We produce the the, the rich 100 rich list. We devote pages of newspapers and magazines to telling their stories and run seminars on how to emulate such people. They're the successful people you like the intellectual and moral rulers of our age, the people who cut it like this. And so the ideal is that you should kind of burn brightly for a while. This is, what, this is what the world tells you. That you should burn brightly for a while. And make it good. And then you fizz out. And that's all there is to it. Burn brightly while you have the opportunity. In the good old days when uh, the government trusted us to use fireworks responsibly, um, we had skyrockets, fantastic things, you stick them in an old bottle, light the touch phrase, the touch paper, burn, stand back because you never knew whether they're going to explode or actually go up. That's probably why they banned them. Wooshka! Up the thing goes, um, uh, exploding into crazy colours as it goes, and then a big bang at the end, big sort of ball, and then it would fall to the ground as embers. That's your life, you see. Burn brightly while you can suck the marrow out of life it's all there isn't it really in dead uh, poet society suck the marrow um, it's kind of embodied in a friend of mine who happened to just drop by this morning mainly to show off her new convertible green uh, convertible leather trimmed BMW with the sunroof uh, automatic windows and so on and so on uh, she, she's a very interesting person she's kind of worked her way sexually through most of her office that's okay because most of the guys have worked their way sexually through most of the office as well, so there has been a, a, an equal sharing there. Uh, that, that at least that's fair. Um, she's bought her flat and uh, decorated it with exquisite taste. Exquisite taste. There's not a there's not a, a poor piece of furniture or artwork uh, in the building. Uh, she's now got her job. She spent uh, she'll go overseas, I think, on uh, junkets on a regular sort of bi-monthly basis. Okay, she embodies the values, the empty display and false values of the world. And don't no, get me wrong, she's a really nice person. See, it's not like that the world turns out nasty people, people with uh, horns and tails that kind of let you know that this is the empty display and false value of the world. No, she's a nice person. I enjoy her company. We have lovely dinners together, especially when she's paying or providing the wine. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it, it's good times. She's friends, she's generous to her friends. She's kind to people. She loves her nephews and nieces. She's good to her godchildren. And yet, if you look, you scratch just a bit beneath the surface, what do you see? Brilliant embodiment of the false empty display and false values of this world. I am saying, don't underestimate the power of this story, because you are saturated in it. The ads you see, the characters who are heroes in movies, the newspapers write about it. It is the story of the 20th century. THE story of the 20th century, and now that we've moved into the 21st century, which I keep forgetting, it's the story of the 21st century, too. That's where you are told to head. What's more, there's some truth in it, isn't there? There's some truth in it, enough truth for it to be a genuinely powerful and persuasive story. Sure, we are individuals. I end at, the, at my skin, you know, that's me. And I do have rights. There's just enough truth in it for it to be powerful, it was just a rank lie no one would buy it. And so you need to be very, very alert. We need to continue to hear the message of 1 Corinthians. That letter that Paul wrote to those ratbag worldly Christians about the culture, the wonderful display, and the true values of the cross of Christ. And he says, we Christians can be different. We Christians ought to be different because we've received not the spirit of the world... With its empty display and false values, but we have received the spirit that is from God. The key text in these two chapters, 1 Corinthians 2 and 3, is in chapter 2, verse 12. If you've got a Bible, check it out, because we're going to be moving fairly swiftly through uh, 1 Corinthians. I have a spare Bible here if anyone would like to bible oh, well. No good, that would be shameful, Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit that is from God. So that we may understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. Okay, let's uh, unpack that a little bit. What's, what is, what's Paul going on about? Remember, the Corinthians were entranced by their culture, by the empty display and false values of their world. They were proud. We looked at that last week. They were proud, like their city. Very proud. And they'd become proud and boastful of particular leaders. I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. I belong to Peter or Cephas. I belong to Christ and so Paul pulls them back to the big picture and says you can't have it both ways there is at the heart of the Christian faith a fundamental ineradicable split there are two sorts of people and no mid ground you can either adopt the values of the world or you can adopt the values of Christ and him crucified they're the two options one or the other And what he says he's on about, he the Apostle, is Christ and him crucified, which though it may sound like foolishness and weakness to those who are perishing, is in fact the power of God and the wisdom of God. Profound power and profound wisdom. But he says, don't expect the world to get that. Don't even dream that the world would get that. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6. Among the mature, we do speak wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to perish we speak God's wisdom what's that wisdom like he goes on secret and hidden which God decreed before the ages for our glory none of the rulers of this age understood this for if they had they would not have crucified the Lord of glory notice a bit about this wisdom it's secret and hidden it's a bit like uh, my son six years old is reading Harry Potter that's great my wife thirty five years old also reading Harry Potter same book My son hates the thought that my wife would be ahead of him reading. So each night, secret and hidden. He hides the book. There's nothing worse than being outsmarted by a (laughs) six-year-old. That's like God's wisdom. It's secret and hidden. God figured it out before the ages. It's for our glory. In terms of wisdom, of course, this is kind of buying into the categories of wisdom, in terms of wisdom, it's got everything going for it. If you want deep mysteries and great profundities, what Paul's saying, yeah, I've got that for you. I'm your man. But negatively, none of the rulers of his age understood it. Those who will power and influence the culture vultures. And you can tell that. Because if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of Glory. The very fact that these rulers, political, intellectual, moral, religious, whatever kind of category you want to frame them in, these rulers, in Paul's day, crucified the Lord of Glory, indicates that they've got no idea... No idea what God is doing in the world. Though, of course, it's not a case of crucifying, but of riding on. In fact, God's plan is so way out that no one could ever possibly have come up with it. So, in one sense, I guess it's hardly surprising that public opinion leaders didn't. Verse 9, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor human heart can see, what God has prepared for those who love Him, these things, says Paul, God has revealed to us. Now, think about it for a moment. You can understand Paul's statement, can't you? Um, That the God of the universe, utterly untroubled by time and space, should become a human... He doesn't give us a message. He gives us himself, in his son. Should become a human being, take on human nature in all its weakness, start life as a dependent baby, live a brief 30 years before submitting to the torture of Roman crucifixion and that this death should somehow in fact be a death for others, a taking of their punishment upon himself, a death that mean others don't die, a sacrifice making it up to God for the wrong that others have committed, that this one should rise from the dead and return to the Father still in a human body, still a human being, one of us and as one of us, Lord of all. Now, who would have made that up? So you kind of get his point, don't you? Who would have made that up? Who could possibly have conceived of that? Now, I wonder Paul describes it as secret and hidden and worked out before the ages. It could not have been of this world. It could not have been of this world. Of course, it makes you ask the question, doesn't it? How exactly did Paul get it? Which leads to his second point. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. This is the only real way, the only way that you can know wisdom, the wisdom of the heart of another person, is to have it revealed to you. Um, That's a slap in the face to science, of course, isn't it? At least, so the scientists would have us believe. You can't do experiments to find this stuff out. You can't work it out from first principles, like that there are 180 degrees in a triangle. I did maths 15 years ago. The only way you can get in on the secret is if the owner of the secret tells you. And that's exactly what God has done through His Spirit. Paul goes on to explain in the second half of verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For what human being knows what is truly human Except the human spirit that is within. The, the, that's the NRSV. It's kind of in its in enthusiasm to not have gender-specific language, which I think is a good policy where where possible. It's kind of fudges the meaning there. It's we don't have a non-gender-specific word. So, I'll cope for a moment, what man knows what is truly in, truly that man's? Except the the human spirit, the man's spirit that is within. What woman knows what is internal to the woman? Except her own spirit within her. That's what he's trying to say. He's not talking about some generalized human. Uh, We're talking about specific in a person. So also, no one comprehends what is truly God's. Except the Spirit of God. It makes sense, doesn't it? How do you get to know someone unless they reveal themselves to you? Or at least, unless they reveal themselves to their friends, but then talk to your friends, who then talk to you. So you can find out what they think, and then you can talk to your friends who talk to their friends, so that he or she finds out what's inside you too. It kind of works on a chain as well. But somewhere, what's got to happen is... That was funny. Maybe too close to to home. I'm married, so (laughs) there's no skin off my nose anymore. Um, What am I saying? I'm saying revelation. That's what I'm saying. Revelation. Unless it's revealed, you won't find out. And that's what God has done for us. He's revealed himself. He has given us his Spirit. Who knows the things of God except the Spirit of God? And verse 12, we have received the Spirit that is from God. Not the Spirit of the world. Not the Spirit of the world. We receive the Spirit of God, and that's so we can understand what God has given to us. Namely, His own Son to die on the cross for us, the Lord of glory to be crucified for us. The message of the cross. And so it would be a contradiction in terms, wouldn't it? For people who have received the Spirit that is from God to act according to the Spirit of the world. The empty display and false values of the Lord. That would just be a contradiction in terms. So that's why Paul says about himself and his own ministry, verse 13, and we speak of these things in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. Or probably I think a better translation there is interpreting spiritual things with spiritual words. That is, you see, since he's received the spirit from God, what he speaks are spiritual things, spiritual truths in spiritual words. In other words, the content of his speech determines the manner of his speech. The content of his speech is a cross, humble, self-sacrificing, weak, even foolish. And so the manner of his speech is the same he takes you back and helps you understand the start of chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians he says I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom thinking why? that would be interpreted in spiritual things in worldly words no I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified and I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling that kind of fits with the cross doesn't it? weakness and fear and much trembling that fits that's spiritual things in spiritual words. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom. That would be worldly. So he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. And so you can hear him saying, you, Corinthians, stop giving me a hard time. Stop giving me a hard time. What I told you, are genuine spiritual truths revealed by the Spirit of God, and for you to write me off says more about you than it does about me. Now I hope you're getting a sense of the opposition, a renewed sense perhaps, because I mean, in one sense, is not new. A renewed sense of the opposition, the alternative sets of values between the spirit and the world, empty display and false values, wonderful, fulsome display, and true values of the cross. You can be on either side of this divide. There may well, I hope, there are people here this afternoon. Perhaps you're not Christian. You've not given your life. you are not given your boast, as the, the Apostle puts it uh, in, in, his, uh, in his letter. You've not put your boast in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that, 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 that is your dream, the dream of my friend. That one day you'll drive up in your green BMW, BMW with your sunroof and your leather trim and smile longingly. You know, long not proudly. Maybe that's still your dream. I'm saying you need to know that you're on the same team as the people who crucified the Lord of glory. That's a bad team to be on, to crucify the Lord of glory. You need to say sorry, you need to ask for Jesus to forgive you. But of course, you might be a Christian. Someone who's in Christ, who has therefore received the Spirit that is from God. much so show that the Apostle will finish this chapter by saying, we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ because we've received the Spirit that is from God. It's one of the hardest things in the Christian life, I think. Being able to pick this line between things that are, uh, are neutral in culture like right, you know, wearing jeans. Hands up, everyone wearing jeans today. We've got jeans for jeans day coming up. You know, that's going to be all right. That's an aspect of our culture. That's just neutral. So that's okay, but, but where, where does this opposition come to the fore? And I'm suggesting perhaps in the individualism of our age that glorifies selfishness by calling it happiness. There are lots of ways to be, that we uh, need to be really sharp To be really on our toes to make sure we don't buy the empty display and false values of this world. We receive the spirit that is from God, not the spirit of the world. And we need to work very hard, especially when you spend so much time breathing its air. Drinking its drink here at this great university. What Paul does is to go on and apply this culture of the cross, this opposition, to the question of leadership. Which is the issue at stake in time. That's not a bad thing for us either, because many of us will exercise positions of leadership and responsibility in the church. You ought to. God's given you great gifts. Just getting to university indicates that you're among the most educated people on the planet. You know that, don't you? The fact that you can write an essay, that you can pass exams, that you can do experiments That makes you among the most educated and intelligent people on the planet. Great gifts so there's every chance that you in fact ought to take up leadership and responsibility within God's church and that's where Paul goes because that was the issue stake state in time he moves on in chapter 3 to that question he says three crucial things about that which sets straight what are human ministers according to the culture of the cross 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 5 what then is Apollos he's back to the same question what then is Paul he gives his answer servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord assigned to each. What are ministers? What are leaders? Well, leadership is kind of on the nose, isn't it? I don't know what you think of politicians. I know what the media on the whole thinks of politicians. And it's pretty on the nose. We don't think much of leaders. We wish they were. And we Christians, if we're going to be leaders, need to be servants. You now, just kind of go with this image for a while. What's a servant? Well, I'll tell you what a servant is. I'm a servant of my wife. That's how it works in our family. I go where she tells me to go. I do what she tells me to do. When she tells me to do it, she says, bring some milk on the way home from church. I bring milk on the way home from church, if I remember. Or I get in trouble if I don't. Like on Sunday. (laughs) That's what Christian ministers are. They're servants. They're servants. In the first place, Apollo is a servant. He was a fantastically beautiful-tongued one. He had magnificent oratorical ability. And he spent some time in Christ. And that's probably where some of these problems came from. Because he was this sort of golden-tongued one. Um, But also Paul, who founded the church, said servants. Mere servants. All of us as well. Mere servants. People under orders. People under authority. It's a non-guru term, isn't it? It's a non-authoritative term. It's a weak term. It's a cross term. Limited responsibility. Notice who we're servants of. We're servants of the Lord. Of the Lord. It's the Lord who assigns to each different tasks. That's a great thing, isn't it? That the Lord assigns to each. Often uh, that's simply by means of opportunity and circumstance and ability and so you need to do the work of thinking about what are your what are your opportunities, what are your circumstances, where has God put you, what are your abilities, your gifts. At the moment, I take it part of what the Lord has assigned to you is to be at Sydney University. It wasn't by accident. It wasn't just because you happened to think of it. You know, you put on the, your your UAP or whatever it is form Sydney University. No, the Lord was in that. And so you got to commit yourself to the cause of Christ here. Where might the Lord assign you in the future? Who knows? It could be anywhere. We're doing a series on mission uh, in our church at the moment. And trying to put before people the genuine possibility that the Lord may assign them overseas for a while. Helping the church in, well, Mongolia was suggested. China, the team is going to later on to have a look there. Who knows where the Lord might assign you? But for the moment, here's where you are. And so we need to get on with it as servants, as those under orders. But the point is that as servants, secondly, as servants, ministers are therefore nothing, especially when compared to the one who gives the growth. Verse 6 I planted, says Paul, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now, I don't know if you kind of get that, not only with regard to yourself, but with regard to others. Neither the one who sows, nor the one who waters is anything. That's your minister. That's your conference speaker, your favorite conference. That's your favorite author. That's your great theological hero. neither the one who sows or the uh, waters or the one who plants is anything. Uh, we need to grab a hold of this. We need to grab a hold of this. Because as I said last week, and I'm going to talk a bit more about it in a, in a moment, for some reason, and I don't really quite understand it, but we evangelicals love our gurus. And we need to know deep in our bones that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives it When I started on the staff team at the EU um, in about 1923, <laughs> um, I worked, I worked uh, with uh, one of my colleagues there particularly uh, closely who was a, a brilliant pastoral minister a brilliant pastoral minister endlessly had deep and meaningful conversations with people brilliant, really. people just loved coming to talk to her and to open up, and she was a fantastic spiritual help to many many people, I, I just I was in awe I was in absolute awe and in fact to the point where I got quite down on myself I still don't quite understand why people don't you know, want to come to me and open up but there it is Until we had a conversation, actually, where she said that she had seen the kind of contribution that I made, which was not her thing at all, and she'd gotten quite down on herself. I laughed at that, and she laughed at me, and we kind of laughed at each other and that broke the spell. See, we hadn't understood cross-shaped ministry. That since we are both fundamentally nothing, fundamentally servants, that means that we don't rate ourselves, we don't rate others. There's room neither for jealousy or for pride. Of course, that's the two different sides of the same point. Jealousy is when you see someone else as a something. Pride is when you see yourself as a something. And in cross-shaped ministry, there's no room for jealousy or pride. We're servants. We're not anything. Matters. In fact, we're simply contributors to a common cause verse 8 the one who plants and the one who waters have a common purpose and each will receive wages according to the labour of each for we are God's servants working together you are God's field God's building so you see different tasks sow and water different contributions in God's providence but the same goal to make a contribution to the harvest to the common cause different roles different tasks different gifts same target the common purpose is seeing a harvest for the Lord in God's field or in another seeing a great building built a wonderful temple in the Lord made up of living stones it's hard work isn't it it's hard work those two images I don't know if you've ever done a day's hard work in your life I I hadn't until recently when I started building a garden which I might have mentioned once or 200 times in the last year or so there's a lot of sweat involved in agricultural and um, architectural work construction work it's hard work a lot of sweat what's more as the Lord assigns so he rewards as the Lord assigns so he rewards again you need to hear this this is kind of grates against us doesn't it because I know we can be kind of uncomfortable with this thought and He'd rather Paul hadn't said it but uh, he's not kind of squeamish about these things as we are there's in fact something of a common theme in the passage it appears in verse 14 where the builder receives a reward that's a good deal isn't it you work hard in God's field you you do your work as a bricky well spiritual bricky and you'll get your reward you'll receive real wages God will be very pleased with you notice though God's role notice God's role if you can put it like that you see where we are nothing where we are mere servants He is everything God is the one who gives the growth. That fits with the whole passage, doesn't it? That's why all the praise goes to him. That's why all the boast goes to him. That's why when we're proud, we're proud of him. Not in ourselves, because it is God who gives the growth. He's the only one able to give the growth. Growing spiritual fruit or building spiritual buildings is just beyond us. It's just beyond us. There's a mystery to it. It's like gardening. We've got these sticks that are planted on. There's a stick, which is a tree, and there's a stick which is a stick. And they just they look the same to me, just sticks of wood. And uh, but Trina assures me, my wife assures me, that comes spring, one of them will still be a stick, and the other one will be a plant. And that's a mist that's magic. That i m I can't do it, she can't do it, the sun doesn't do it, it's God who does it. In the sustaining and providential power, it's God who does it. And uh, that's what it's like spiritually, isn't it? You see that when you come up hard against people who are hard against the gospel. They're hard against Christ. You talk to them, you explain, you argue rationally, you show them, you care for them, you cry with them, you, you, you suffer with them. And it just doesn't get through. Because you can't bring the growth. It's God who brings the growth. Yeah, you hear that, and you think, okay, well, we're nothing, I'm a, I'm a minister, I'm nothing, I'm a, I might be in Christian leadership, or ministry, that means don't bother, it's God who gives the growth let him, let him do his thing it won't matter much whether I do anything, doesn't matter whether I prepare that Bible study well, doesn't matter whether I care for my friend uh, conscientiously well, not quite not quite, it's a half truth the half truth is this we have to break the connection that governs nearly all that we do, that is that what you get out of something is what you put into it that what you get out of something is what you put into it. Uh, your university degree is based on this, that if you work hard during the semester, then you'll do well at the end of the semester, in your exams and essays. And it's quite disillusioning when it doesn't happen that way, doesn't it? It's quite disillusioning when you work hard and you do badly. And it's almost as disillusioning, perhaps not quite as disillusioning, when you don't work hard and you do well. That's still pretty disillusioning, don't you think? I, I've Humbly, I can tell you, experience that. And I find that nearly as disillusioning. Maybe all the other times when I did well when I, well, I thought it was because I worked hard, which is because I fooled the examiner again. It's still pretty disillusioning. We think that inputs equals outputs, but that's not the way it is with God. That's not the way it is with God. God gives the growth. And between the inputs and outputs is God, the living and true and powerful God. So that's what's true about the well. If God gives a growth, just be slack. But, but Paul goes on. One Corinthians chapter three, verse ten. According to the grace given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. Each builder must choose with care how to build on it. For no one, no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, the work of each builder will become visible. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If what has been built on the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. If the work is burned up, the builder will suffer loss. The builder will be saved, but only as through fire. You see what Paul does? God gives the growth, yes. But that doesn't mean, okay, we'll just build sloppily then. No. God gives the growth, but you take care. You take care. Why? Why? because your work will be exposed the reason to work hard is not because that will grow more God gives it growth not because it will build more God will build you work hard because it will be tested with fire gold, silver, precious stones you know what happens when they go into fire? they get hot wood, hay and straw you know what happens when they go into fire? they evaporate no, that's, that's water, isn't it? no, they just burn up they burn out. up your work will become visible on the day, the day of judgment. The day of judgment will disclose what you have done because that day will be revealed in fire. And what is built shoddily will be exposed. If as Christian leaders we build with large portions of charm and personality, easy oratory or positive thinking, maybe you know management skills or powerful and emotional experiences and, and just sort of people smarts, But without the repeated and passionate layer upon layer of Christ Jesus and Him crucified, that will be exposed. That will be exposed. Not that all those other things are are bad, but they can't build real church. You see the point here? We need to get it very powerfully. God gives the growth, yes, but that doesn't mean that we don't take care. On the contrary, we take care, not because there can be no growth without us, because there can. But because... Uh, God will judge our work and test it. And the promise is that if we build well, you will we hear this uh, next week as we move over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, if we build well, we receive nothing less than the reward of the living God. If you build badly, your work will be burnt, burnt up. You'll escape. You'll, you'll make it. But, but singed. However, it gets worse. There's a limit. Verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is holy and you are that people. You see, this Christian ministry thing is not something to be mucked around with as the Corinthians were doing. You stand on holy ground when you stand in the presence of God and his people. And if you destroy the people of God, then you be warned. Notice how he broadens out here, It's anyone. And you hear, you Corinthians, us you. Well, I don't even want to finish the sentence. It's so terrifying, I thought. I need to finish quickly, I've gone over time. I want to say two things. One, in the middle of these two chapters, it's very interesting. Paul says that he can't address the Corinthians as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies that can only cope with milk. That's what the Corinthians were like. And the evidence that they were babies that they were spiritual infants, was the fact that there was jealousy and quarrelling among them. I to tell you brothers and sisters that as I reflected on our own situation here in Sydney, I have started to wonder whether we are mere infants, endlessly quarrelling as Bible-believing Christians with each other, endlessly quarrelling as Bible-believing Christians with each other. I hear it time and time again, respected Bible teachers saying they are happy to write off other people, write them off as heretics because they've heard them, as they've talked to them, as they've engaged, no, because someone else told them. They won't even do the work themselves. I've heard endless young Christian leaders condemn something without having read it. How long has it been since you've been in a conversation of moderate disagreement expressed? Someone says that they're not quite sure whether another person has quite caught the full biblical perspective. Mostly what we're into is outright condemnation a little while ago the Archbishop of Canterbury was out here. The only comment I heard really made about him of a negative kind was that he was a person who was an enemy of the cross. That's all there is to say. A self proclaimed evangelical. Now I don't know, I'm not defending the Archbishop of Canterbury. What I'm saying is that is our tone in this city. And I fear that it's uh, amongst us Bible believing Christians, and I fear that it's just our city, the false display, the empty display, false values of the world having infected the church. In particular, there's an endless kind of back and forth about the ministries here at Sydney Uni and at New South Wales Uni. I don't know if you've kind of picked up on that or even engaged in it. And sometimes it's just fun and games. After all, we're the first university and there's still Kenzo Tech and all that kind of thing, (laughs) right? And so we can kind of keep shoving that. But at times it can get much more than that. Much more than that. And we must not be infants with jealousy and quarreling. The challenge for us is to be a generation of Christ's people that holds with deep passion to the truth, but with hands that are shaped by the cross. That's right. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would sow right on our hearts the shape of the cross, that we be not infants, but mature in Christ. And we pray for his sake. Thanks, Andrew. We look forward to your final week. on the other half of that sheet I mentioned before is an outline of everything that's going to be happening this semester. It's an exciting program, uh, there's a lot of great things there, and uh, you'll be hearing a little bit more about them next week, but you might like to look over that now. Please, on your way out, remember all of the Yes forms and all of the Building Muscles to Serve EU Training Courses forms into the boxes. Uh, and you may also like to put in the other forms into the boxes if uh, you fill them out as well. Please join us for afternoon tea downstairs.